Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Wednesday morning show for you. We start today with the leader of the official opposition at the legislature, Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United. Kevin, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. I appreciate it. Let's start with the this viral video you shared on social media this week. And, man, this is getting a lot of attention online. The anti-police slogans we heard at a rally in Vancouver last week. We're going to have a listen to it here now. That The rally took place on the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery. One of the speakers here zeroing in on police liaison programs in BC public schools. They want police out of schools. Let's listen. Okay, uh, because they're ugly, because they're killers, they hate my kids, we heard there. Kevin Falcon, your thoughts? I know you're concerned about it. Well, yeah, I'm very concerned. What I'm, I'm concerned in two levels. First of all, it's just it's bloody outrageous, but that's typical, you know, hard left-wing kind of rhetoric. What really concerns me is that there on the sharing the stage with them were a whole bunch of 16 NDP MLAs, including the Attorney General, uh, that were up on that same stage, taking part with those same radical leftists, you know, talking about uh, cops being killers, cops hate kids, cops are ugly. I mean, what kind of nonsense is this, especially yeah. in light of the recent death of uh, that poor, you know, Constable Rick O'Brien yeah. shot to death defending his community. I mean, it, frankly, it, it does really piss me off, to be honest with you, Mike. Mm. Well, I, I will point out that this rally happened before Officer O'Brien was killed. I don't, not sure that makes it a whole lot better. Let's listen. Let's listen again. Okay, listen very carefully here. I'll ask the listeners to listen very carefully to the words that are used here. Here's a shorter version of the clip. Let's listen. Yeah, so because they're ugly, they're killers, they hate my kids. Now, you said that there were some NDP MLAs who were on the stage there. I did reach out to the NDP. They say they believe all their MLAs had left the rally by the time this these words were spoken. Does that satisfy you? No, it doesn't satisfy me at all. Frankly, um, can you imagine, just for a second, if I had been on a stage with people that were yelling out racist, anti-Semitic remarks, for example. What do you think the NDP would be doing right now? I'll tell you exactly what they'd be doing. They'd be demanding a statement uh, saying how terrible it is and denouncing those statements. So I say that, and, and which I would obviously do in about two seconds. So what I would say to the NDP, especially the Attorney General, 
the chief law enforcement officer of the province, for God's sake, where is the statement denouncing this kind of nonsense? Where is the statement that says, no, actually, police do an amazing job in our community. We've seen, sadly, several of them have been slayed in the line of duty in the last year alone. And, you know, frankly, this is totally unacceptable behavior. And the fact that the NDP are hanging out with crowds that are yelling out stuff like that just says everything you need to know. Remember, David Eby, the militant former activist from the Pivot Legal Society, wrote the manual How to Sue the Police. And, you know, I've been around for a while. I remember in 2010 when he was with the B.C. Civil Liberties Union out there on the streets uh, going after the police because they're trying to deal with anarchists. They were smashing windows downtown Vancouver. So there's a history in that party that's very anti-police. And frankly, I want to call them out for it, and they should issue a statement denouncing it. Okay, well, this rally took place on the day that we saw competing rallies in the province over the SOGI program in our schools, sexual orientation and gender identity in in B.C. schools. There were anti-SOGI rallies. Then we saw the pro-SOGI rallies that were organized in response. This was billed as as a a pro-SOGI rally that somehow morphed into this anti-police moment here on the stage. Now, the New Democrats are also saying to me, Kevin, in response to you, that there were there were some hateful messages and comments made at these at these anti-Soji rallies, too. And they say why they're calling on you to condemn that. What do you say to that? Well, you know, I've already done it. So why don't they go look at my clip that's on Twitter that's had over 104,000 views when I talk about Soji? And, of yeah. course, uh, when the one of the reporters asked the question about apparent comments that were made that were anti-Semitic in nature, et cetera, I denounced it right on the spot. Didn't hesitate for a second. So, you know, I don't need them lecturing me about the right thing to do. What I'd like to know is that the Attorney General of this province and the 15 MLAs that joined her uh, in that crowd of, of left-wing uh, crazies, quite frankly, that are saying that kind of outrageous stuff about our police officers that they should issue a strong denunciation of it. It's really simple. Issue a statement. Where do you stand on police liaison officers in B.C. public schools? I know this is down to the responsibility of local school districts. We've seen some school districts take police officers out of schools. In Vancouver, we had the flip-flop. They took them out and then put them back in with, with a new school board. Where do you stand on it generally? Do you support these programs? Very much so, and I congratulate the... Uh, the ABC school board for doing that. I think the police liaison officers are very, very important. They build a relationship of trust with kids. The kids have someone to go to when they see bad things are starting to happen, particularly around drug dealing, uh, human trafficking, the kind of things that kids unfortunately are exposed to nowadays. Uh, I think it's a great thing and it should be supported. Speaking to Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United, he's the leader of the official opposition at the legislature. While I have you here, let me ask you about some of the recent opinion polls that have come out, which I'm that got to be troubling for you. This new poll just out from research company NDP in first place by a mile here. Forty eight percent of decided voters. I don't think I've ever seen the NDP score that high in a poll. The B.C. United Party, your party in second place, 20, 20 percent, what, 28 points back. My God, B.C. Conservative Party almost tied with you at 19 percent. Was it now a mistake for the B.C. Liberal Party to change its name to B.C. United, given these poll results here? Look, first of all, Mike, I've been around for a while, so I've got the benefit of some experience here. Uh, first of all, I put very little trust in online polls. I'll be t- candid. In fact, I think polling itself is very untrustworthy. I want to remind all the 
smarty pants pundits out there that are going on about how troubling this poll should be, that they're the same people that in 2013, when the BC Liberals were 22 points below the NDP two weeks before the election said we were toast and we won a majority. Okay, so if they want to keep pretending that these polls uh, a year before an election are somehow accurate barometers, go ahead. But I'll tell you what my poll is. I spend a lot of time out in the community. I'm like a walking poll. And I meet people in grocery stores, gas stations, sky trains, you name it. And I can tell you right now that people are very, very unhappy with the state of the nation here in British Columbia. The cost of living is the highest in North America. So is housing prices. So are gas prices. Healthcare is crumbling. We're sending people south to the United States to get basic cancer care. we got crime spinning out of control. Listen, I will happily take that into a 28-day campaign against David Eby. I can't even imagine what it must be like to run on a record like that. And I'll tell you when the okay. public does start paying attention, because frankly, they're not right now. And frankly, there's a ton of confusion between the federal conservatives. The BC conservatives are all thinking this is about them. It's not. It's people that are confusing the federal conservative party and not recognizing BC United. We only changed our name six months ago. So look, I'm very comfortable. By the time the next election ro- rolls around, you just watch what happens. Okay, so there's no going back then, right? Because I have spoken to some liberals who are worried about this, saying, whoa, did we make a big mistake here changing the name? Maybe we should have kept the BC Liberal name. There's no going back. You would not switch back to BC Liberals at this point. No, no, we're not, we're okay. not, we're not going back. We're going we're to go into that this election. And just remember, you know, I want to give it, tell your listeners a little story about uh, the ABC party, that a year before they won a massive election, nobody had heard of ABC. You know, it, 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 that's just normal. People don't pay attention until the election rolls around. So I, don't, frankly, don't care much about what polls say. Obviously, I'd rather have polls that show, hey, we're way out in front, but that creates problems in itself. Then all the media start attacking you and saying, oh, geez, now they're, yeah. they could be winners. We better start going after them. So, you know, frankly, count me out. I love it because we'll see what happens when election time rolls around. Would you, would you ever consider entering into merger talks with the B.C. Conservative Party? Maybe you get together and form a new party called United Conservatives. What do you think? <laughs> no. Well, look. Look, all they have to do is, uh, you know, they, they, they could come back, uh, quite frankly. You know, so just remember, the B.C. Conservative Party hasn't elected a single person. Uh, what you have is two people that walked away from our party, and they're now calling themselves B.C. Conservatives because they signed a membership card. If they're so confident, they can call by-elections in those seats that they ran in where they got supported by B.C. Liberals, now B.C. United, and see how they do. They won't do that because they're afraid to do that. So, you know, don't kid yourself what's going on here. I don't. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. Let's talk about the hiring blitz that Uber is on in British Columbia right now. We talked about this earlier on the show this week, and you can't escape these ads right now. I mean, this is just saturation advertising from Uber. They want more drivers in British Columbia right now i got terry towner standing by terry's a coquitlam city councillor and an uber driver let's take a listen to one of these ads here first these are the ads that are everywhere hi my name is sierra i'm abraham i'm maya i've been driving with uber for three years four thousand trips six thousand trips work when you want take breaks when you want i'm the boss i will not work on my birthday (laughs) when i don't feel like talking to people anymore it's so easy to just switch to delivery turn on my smooth jazz and, and just let it go Boom! Billetes, billetes, billetes. Be there for your kid when they're sick. You can make your own schedule. Uber! I can beat my own boss. Yes! <laughs> okay. I, 
it sounds good, right? What is the job really like? How much does it pay? Is it is it enjoyable? Let's find out. Terry Towner is my guest. Terry's a Coquitlam City Councilor and an Uber driver. Hey, Terry, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, I, I remember talking to you about Uber a couple of years ago when when Uber was first first approved and finally legalized. We had such a long fight over it here in BC. I know you were very keen to become an Uber driver, and you did that, right? So you got your license, you got your Class Four license, right? Yeah, I was quite uh, loudly advocating for allowing ride sharing in BC, and I thought, you know what, I'll walk the talk. So <laughs> I went through the process and and all the steps that are involved, just so I could, you know, put my money where my mouth is and really understand. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So you have to get that commercial class license, the Class Four driver's license, right? What was that like? Ah, uh, you know what? It was it was interesting. I, I actually learned a lot. It made me realize that. There's probably a lot of us out there that could do refresher uh, driving <laughs> with our licenses if we got our licenses decades ago. But I, I learned a lot with that. And there's also the criminal record check, the vehicle inspection, a medical exam. You know, there's a very, very thorough vetting to become a, a rideshare driver. Right, right. And as far as that class four license, did you... How did you go about getting that license? Like for people who are wondering, like what's involved there? Did you have to take a course there for that or how'd that work out? There's a pretty thick book that ICBC produces, you know, covering vehicle inspections and hours of work and the maximum hours per day of driving and, you know, just safety issues and then a lot of refresher on rules of the road. So, yeah, I studied the book, did the online test, went in. Um, and then had my road test. So it was quite a few steps, but I'm I'm really glad I did it. It yeah. makes me feel more confident that people are out there with, you know, a little more knowledge on safety and the roads. Yeah, there are some, there's some hurdles you have to clear here to actually do this job that we, and we've just gone over them there. And I remember Uber at the time and the, and the other rideshare platforms too, like Lyft, they were mad that BC was requiring that commercial driver's license. They were, no, no, don't do this to us. Just let people drive with a regular license. But the BC government sort of stuck to their guns on that. And so that's what's required. Do you think that was the right thing to do? Like, it's a little extra hassle for people, right, to get that license. But do you think it was a, do you think that was a wise move? You know, the way traffic is in Metro Vancouver, um, I, I initially kind of resisted it because I thought, you know, I'm driving my kids teammates and field trips and I'm driving a carload of kids helping out as a, a busy involved mom just with yeah. my class five and there was no concern and I didn't really see how this was different however when I guess when you're making money from driving people I think safety is extra important so I did resist it at first and push back a little bit but now it looks like there's no problem getting ride-sharing drivers so Maybe it was perhaps the right thing to do. Yeah, maybe looking back on it now. You have to have that special ICBC insurance policy too, correct? You know, that's done through the rideshare companies. My car insurance okay. is the same as far as I know. Yeah, okay. it's the same. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's talk about what this job is really like. Like, you know, how, do you like it? Do you enjoy it? Well, I, I haven't actually driven since before the pandemic. So I only drove for a couple of months. As you know, it was legalized. It came to BC in early January 
And I think I drove up until the very end of February before the pandemic. So I only did it, you know, and I do work elsewhere. So I didn't do a ton of drives, maybe 60. So it's been a while. I have reactivated my Uber credentials uh, recently because I want to start driving again. But yeah. in the time that I drove, I absolutely loved it. It was mm. really fun. The time went by really fast. And I, I I really like it. I'm a people person. I like to be part of the solution. I like uh, reducing the number of cars on the road. So, for example, there was one evening I had to drive out to North Van to pick up my son at something. And I live in Coquitlam. So I set my app and I picked up a woman in Poco who had to go to North Van. So really, I took a road, a car off the road because we both had to go to North Van. I was going anyways. I gave her the ride. So I I like that aspect of driving for Uber and yeah, I enjoy it. Wow, that's that's kind of cool. So you're going that way anyway, so you figured I might as well make a couple of bucks at the same time. Right? Exactly. And it's yeah. one less car on off the road because yeah. I was going there anyway. So if she, you know, called a different person or a taxi or then there's another car going that way. Yeah. So it 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 can really reduce congestion or traffic anyways. Speaking to Coquitlam City Councilor Terry Towner, Terry also is an Uber driver. So would you say that, Ask. I'm interested in your thoughts on what it's like to drive as a, as a female, like a woman driver. Do you ever feel, you ever feel unsafe in the driving? I never felt unsafe, no. And I did it, you know, at night and there's, we have a lot of craft breweries in the Tri-Cities. So I did it. Yeah you know, a handful of rides picking up people, even of the opposite gender from, you know, after an evening of, you know, consuming craft beer, which is fine. I never felt unsafe. People yeah. were really friendly. I do have a dash cam camera that I use, but mm-hmm. I did notice this time when I went into the Uber office and got reactivated and whatnot, there is an option now that behind the scenes on the driver app, you can request female um, riders only, like yes. only female customers. So you know what, if I am out and about and it's, I don't know if I'm going to do it too late at night or anything, but if that they're op- that option is there now for the female drivers, right? Driving for Uber, they can switch and only pick up female passengers. Yeah, I don't know if I'll do that or not. Um, I never felt unsafe. I think that's a really good option, though, for people. You know, if you're a woman driver and you're thinking like, man, I don't know about this. This is making me a little nervous here. Well, if you can just you can just use the app to pick up a female passenger that might give you think that might give some some women drivers a little bit more more confidence. I really do. I was speaking with a friend the other day. She drives for Uber Eats to make ends meet. And she said that she only drives Uber Eats because she doesn't want to risk picking up, being an, a, alone, a female alone, picking up a male yeah. and that unsafe, that feeling of un, being unsafe. And so I told her about this option and that um, changed the direction for her. Yeah, interesting. Speaking of Terry Towner, Coquitlam City Councillor, she's an Uber driver. So when you mentioned that, hey, Terry, you're a people person and you like talking to people. So is that typical when you pick up your passengers you always have like a little chit chat. I mean, I, I sometimes wonder, sometimes maybe the passengers don't want to talk. 
You know what? You have to gauge the gauge their mood. Some people are super friendly and really chatty and other people aren't. And you just sort of you, you figure that out within the first 30 seconds to a minute. Yeah. I ask them what kind of music they want to listen to, offer them bottled water and uh, let, let them be if they don't want to chat. And there was yeah. a lot of people that I picked up that were here visiting who didn't even speak English. So it was just smiling and nodding and, you know, communicating <laughs> in a friendly way that way. Yeah. You just you 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 pick up the vibe that the passenger is giving off. Right, right. Okay. How about the money? How bottom line it here for me, Terry? How much can you make at this job? I'm actually really curious. I do want to do the analysis whether it's worth it for me to go back into doing it. Um, I was keeping a really detailed spreadsheet back in 2020 when I was doing it because I was getting a lot of attention and I really wanted to have quantitative data to back up you know supporting uber and lyft and i was making between 35 and 42 dollars an hour back wow. then and that included after paying for my gas oh. gas has gone up things have gone up people might not be as excited now it's not new anymore people were just ecstatic that we finally had ride sharing and i think they were extra generous with the tips so i don't know it might be a lot lower now per hour it might or it might be still i, I want to balance my time and my enjoyment of it and economics yeah so i you'll have to get back to me in a couple of months to see if it's still you know decent so how much did, how much did you wages. make how much did you make an hour back then? I was making between 35 and 42 an hour. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Like, what, what do you think of that? I know. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Was that more so than you After I finished more doing than you it, I, I set aside all my Uber earnings. And when I stopped driving because of the COVID, I, I bought an e-bike with the money. Mm. <laughs> so Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Was, was it more like wait, making that hourly rate? Did that surprise you? You're making that, that much? Or do you think it would be lower than that? I thought it would be lower. Yeah. Um, but again, I was doing it um, for other motivations rather than money at the time. And uh, even now, I, I, I got inspired to reactivate my Uber when I have a friend, she's visually impaired, and I take we go running every week. And she was telling me that her and a lot of her also visually impaired friends get very poorly treated by Uber drivers. And that mm. angered me. So I kind of want to get back out there and I don't know how I can advertise myself to be the driver for visually impaired folks in the Tri-Cities, but that's part of my goal to get back to it. So, I mean, yeah, of course, I would like to get paid to do it, and yeah. I want to keep promoting it and, and all that. But what would I, the, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that. Like, what would an Uber driver do if you have a visually impaired passenger? What were they doing that was not not nice? Uh, my friend told me that, you know, after uh, a workshop or she runs a, a nonprofit society that supports visually impaired folks, you know, they would phone, get their Uber and the Uber driver would show up. And once numerous times, once the Uber driver was aware that these folks had white canes and, you know, were blind, they would drive away. Oh, that happened on numerous the? occasions. And even hmm. my girlfriend she got dropped off at her home in a townhouse complex outside the stairs of her door. And the Uber driver just pulled her luggage out, threw it on the ground and zoomed away. Well, she's she can't see. She didn't know where her luggage was. Oh, man. And, you know, just little things like that. And it angered me. So after my run with her that day, we talk a lot while we run. 
I am. Um, started the process to reactivate being an Uber driver. I don't, like I said, I don't know how I can advertise through the app that, yeah. hey, if you're visually impaired and need to drive a ride in the Tri-Cities, you know, I'm your driver. Yeah. But I, it angered me to. Um, yeah, I think rightly the, so. Yeah. Terry, thank you for coming on. It's always great to talk to you. Appreciate it. I really appreciate you reaching out to me, Mike. Have a great day. Yeah. talk about sticker shock at the grocery store it is always just eye-watering some of the prices now when you go into the your local supermarket you get to that checkout you know how many times you get up there now if you're through the express lane or something you have one bag of groceries and they're saying oh, it'll be eighty dollars ninety dollars you gotta be kidding me and the prices are so high justin trudeau here putting a line in the sand for a grocery chain saying you better lower your prices by Thanksgiving. I got Mike Von Masso standing by to discuss this here now, but have a listen to Trudeau here reading the riot act to the grocery stores. Have a listen. It's not okay that our biggest grocery stores are making record profits while Canadians are struggling to put food on the table. And we expect to hear from them by Thanksgiving on what their plan is to stabilize prices. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Mike Von Massow, University of Guelph, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Mike, thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thanks, Mike, for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So when you hear Trudeau there talk about the record record profits for grocery stores, is that true? Are they racking up huge record profits right now? Well, yes, the grocery stores are profitable. Uh, there are a variety of reasons that is, but yes, they are making bigger profits than they have in the past. Right. So I remember I took a look at a recent uh, competition bureau report. It looked like they were making a, about three and a half percent profit there last year. The big three grocery stores are they in that ballpark? Is that what are their what are their profit margins right now? Well, m- margins. Uh... Grocery stores are relatively low-margin businesses, uh, yeah. especially on the food side. So the grocery stores are, are selling more. Um, you know, margin is also a percentage often. And so if prices are a little higher, they'll make a little bit higher. The big grocers will also argue that, uh, that and there is a difference between grocery stores that have pharmacies and those that don't. Uh, that that it's product mix that's making the difference and not uh, food products. But the basics of what Trudeau said is right. They are making record profits. I I would argue that they're not, uh, and and, and even the Competition Bureau report would argue that they're not contributing to inflation, uh, but uh, we're going after them because they are profitable businesses. Okay, let's listen to another clip here of the Prime Minister. Now, you heard in that first one we played that they want to see a plan from the big grocery store chains to lower prices, and they want it by Thanksgiving. Now, what happens if they don't lower prices? Listen to Trudeau here, then I'll get your thoughts. Let me be very clear. If their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action, and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. Okay, so we will tax you. If you don't lower your prices, we will hit you with the tax hammer here. 
Mike, can you help me to understand this here now? How is this supposed to make prices lower by raising taxes on these grocery store chains? Well, it won't. In yeah. fact, <laughs> it, may, it might do the exact opposite. So uh, the truth is they're saying, well, if the part of the problem is they're not saying how much they'll tax them. They'll, they're not saying what it means to stabilize prices. It doesn't mean, you know, they said relief. It doesn't say which prices. So it's hard for these uh, retailers to respond. Um, it's hard for the retailers to say, "Oh, well, here's what to give a plan that will that will make that will make the government happy." But I think if they get taxed, they may actually increase uh, <laughs> they may actually increase prices. So it's really just the government threatening, uh, hoping that the threat will lead to lower prices. Mike, it's worth noting that two out of the last three months, prices have actually come down. So if I was a grocery CEO, I'd say, look, we're already making progress, even though that the lower prices have little to do with what they are doing, uh, just as the prices going up had little to do with what they're doing. So to me, this is a bit of political theater yeah. uh, in, in, in a time where... Uh, Government is is getting pressured on cost of living and is is seeing poor uh, poor uh, poll results and and yes. and is looking to point the picture uh, point the finger at somebody else. Yeah, for our, I think you're right on the money there. I was thinking the same thing too. That this is a little bit of a political grandstanding here. Try to make these grocery stores look look tough against these grocery stores. The grocery stores will probably turn around and say, well, yeah, sure, we've got a plan here and prices are going to get a little bit more stabilized and it's all good. Like, I just would be shocked if he actually followed through on this threat to impose a, an excessive profits tax. And I, I want to play another clip here for you, might get your thoughts, because Jugmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, has been calling for an excessive wealth profit tax on grocery stores for a long time. And let's go back in time here. Let's go in the way back machine here. One year ago. So this is Trudeau speaking one year ago. And this was after Jugmeet Singh said, hey, why don't you whack these grocery stores with taxes? Maybe that'll get them to lower their prices if you do that. And here's what Trudeau said about that at the time. Let's listen. The last thing we want to do is uh, put on a tax that people then just pass along to the consumers. So uh, we have to be careful about what we're doing. Uh, but I don't think that the uh, simplistic solution, as satisfying as it might sound, uh, is necessarily the right approach. Okay. So that was a year ago, and he was worried about an, a profits tax being just passed along to the consumer and jacking up prices even higher, like you said. So what has changed here? I think I think it's maybe the polls have changed, and he's got to do something. <laughs> well, I think I think there's a couple of things that have changed. I, th I think first the poll numbers have changed, so so the 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 tune that they're playing has changed. The other thing that I think has changed, and 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 I don't know if they're being strategic here, but if we look, as I said before, if we look at two of the last three months, uh, uh, prices have actually come down. And, in fact, in all three of the last three months, the rate of food price inflation has been actually lower than the rate of, of general inflation. So what's to stop the, the retailers and, frankly, the government from coming out in, in a month or six weeks or two months to say, look, prices are coming down. We yeah. threatened the retailers. The retailers gave us what we wanted. 
and uh, look what a great job we're doing. So it could it could also be if if they're if 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 they're anticipating it could also be sort of taking some action because they know prices are going to come down anyway. So yeah. that, that 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 might sound a, that might sound a bit cynical, but that was the first thing I thought of when I when I heard the, when I heard this timing, because actually things are getting better. Now, don't get me wrong; food prices are still high, as you said. It's eighty bucks for a bag of groceries yeah. quite easily, but but we're seeing actually some prices come down, and I think there continues to be room for optimism over the next few months. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I think you're right. I think that there is some political theater here going on for sure. Let's have a listen to Jagmeet Singh, aforementioned here, the federal NDP leader. Of course, he's propping up the Trudeau minority government in Ottawa. And here is Singh on food prices, and I'll get your thoughts. It is not that prices have gone up in relation to the cost of production or the other costs that have increased, that grocery stores and CEOs have increased their profits beyond that or increased their prices beyond that to make record profits. Okay, so when I listened to the grocery store CEOs, Mike, when they recently testified in Ottawa, a lot of them were saying, hey, our input costs have gone up, gasoline has gone up, carbon tax has gone up, this is all costing us money, so it's more expensive to run the business. Jagmeet Singh there saying he, he, does, he just doesn't believe that. He thinks their profits have galloped ahead of their, their costs. Is is he right? I mean, is there is there evidence to support that? No, I, and even if you look at the Competition Bureau report that came out, there was no definitive evidence that grocery stores are contributing to to food price inflation. This whole concept of greedflation. The Bank of Canada also came out. I think what everybody's ignoring is it's not just about the costs of labor and transportation and those things. It's the cost of the raw ingredients that have gone up. Right. We've had we, we've had extreme weather events. We've had the war in Ukraine. Uh, many of these ingredients are going up and that that is getting passed on. And so um, I think that the biggest problem we have here is a lack of sort of analysis, a lack of data, a lack of understanding of why the prices are going up. And so everybody uh, including both opposition parties, are flailing a little bit to try and say, here's what we do and here's, what, here's where it's going. The first thing we need to do is understand what's going on, why it's happening, understand there's probably little that the government can do uh, because the war in Ukraine, extreme weather events, there's little we can do in the short run. Um, and so w- what, we're, what we're doing is, I think, to a significant degree, a disservice to Canadians at saying, well, here's what's happening or here's what's happening without saying, look, this is a complex issue. There are a number of significant reasons uh, that, uh, that prices are going up and it's not going to be easy to bring prices down. Most of those things are out of the, out of the government's control. We're hearing the Conservatives say, get rid of the carbon tax. Well, yeah. uh, the Bank of Canada has said that the carbon tax has contributed sort of 0.15% to inflation. That's a, that's a pretty small chunk. So might it, might it uh, reduce prices a little bit? Perhaps, but not to the degree that people have said. And I think what it ignores is the fact that 80% of Canadians are getting more money back than they're paying in carbon tax. And so, in fact, unless prices came down a lot, getting rid of the carbon tax will actually be a net loss for most Canadian households. So 
I think what we're what we're what we're getting is a lot of confusion and 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 muddying of the waters without a good understanding of what's happening. Mike, it's always great to have you on. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. All right, let's talk about LNG production in British Columbia now. Liquefied natural gas. Update for you on the giant LNG Canada project. Taking a look at a headline in the Financial Post. LNG Canada set to start shipping around the world within two years. The giant export facility in Kitimat, British Columbia, now 85% complete. This is a massive, massive project, $40 billion, one of the largest private sector investments in Canadian history. And of course, the company says, look, LNG, liquefied natural gas, yes, it's a fossil fuel, but look, this is actually good for the environment. It's actually a good thing. Why is that? Well, if we can sell our LNG to Asia, and displace some of their coal-burning capacity there, LNG burns cleaner, you're actually ahead of the game. This is actually good for the planet. Now, you'll get an argument from environmental groups over that. We've got both sides of it here for you. What an awesome panel we have for you coming up here in just a moment. Have a listen here first now. Let's go back in time. This is former Premier John Horgan, back when this LNG Canada project was approved. And here he is touting how it's environmentally responsible. Have a listen. We put in place uh, guidelines for LNG Canada, making it the cleanest LNG in the world. LNG bunkering in the port of Vancouver will mean uh, that we can reduce emissions uh, in the marine fleets of countries around the world. In my discussions with the uh, cruise ship industry, the... All right, let's discuss now with my guests. We've got an awesome panel on this for you, both sides of it. Andrew Dumbrill is Canada campaigner. He's with the campaign called Say No to LNG. Andrew, thank you for coming on today. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Good to be here. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Also on the line, Cody Battershill. Cody is the founder of the of Canada Action, which is a pro-oil and gas group in Alberta. Hey, Cody, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me, and it's great to be chatting with Andrew today. Yeah, I appreciate both of you guys being here. Andrew, let me go to you first. Tell me about your campaign here, Say No to LNG. Why do you want people to say no to this uh, this fuel? Yeah, so, um, you know, people can uh, can check it out at saynotolng.org, and uh, it's very transparent uh, a website with you know where the information comes from, and I think it you know in order to answer that question, I think we have to kind of back up a bit to to look at the climate crisis and and given what we've all experienced this this year in Canada with wildfires, I think it's it's pretty obvious that that it is a crisis, is it is an emergency, it is a short term problem, um, and. And it requires, uh, you know, major investments in in renewable energy um, and fast uh, action. But I think that's really a key piece is the is this short term around dealing with the climate crisis, uh, given what we've seen this year. Because if you look at LNG, um, especially as a marine fuel, and that's the 
that's the space that I work in. It's it's shipping and marine engines and and marine fuel. Um, LNG is it doesn't significantly, if at all, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, mainly because it's predominantly methane, which is 80 times or maybe slightly higher, uh, more of a, a climate forcer or climate warming gas than CO2. Very, very potent. Okay. Um, and it was, it just getting back to this short-term aspect, and then I'll then I'll uh, then I'll stop. Is that when I say it's you know 80 times more more potent uh, potent than than CO2? That's on a 20-year global warming potential. Um, a lot of studying of this gas, mainly by industry, is looking at a 100-year global warming potential, and that number reduces significantly. The thing okay. is, methane has all its impact in the first 10 to 12 years it's in the atmosphere. So that's why we have to look at this the short-term aspect of it. Okay, let's go to Cody. Cody, what do you say to Andrew on that point? Well, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, talks about how liquefied natural gas is going to be significantly uh, better for the climate than coal power. We know that around the world, people are focused on energy security, turning on the lights, having food, developing and, and supporting their families in many developing countries, China and India, both building record amounts of coal power and using record amounts of coal power. So getting LNG to those developing countries is a win for immediately reducing emissions. And we really got to think big here. We got we to gotta think globally. And then second, trying to get some of these big shipping companies off of bunker fuel, oil, turning that uh, and, and using natural gas instead, it's been considered by many shipping experts, many marine industry bodies as a uh, lower emission uh, opportunity. And so a lot of new ships are being built with LNG. The Heisla have got some, um, you know, some, some tugboats. There's lots of uh, new marine opportunities to reduce our impact immediately. And we just need to, uh, well, we need to say yes to LNG, and we have. We got LNG Canada under construction. Uh, we've got Cedar LNG, Kylisms, Wood Fiber, Tilbury, a lot of really important projects for Indigenous communities, for all Canadians' prosperity. And um, just there's a lot of progress happening here. So I, I just okay. reject the fear-mongering from Andrew around, um, you know, we need to be pragmatic and balanced. And I think... Okay. Um, that that conversation should prevail. Okay, let me get Andrew's response on this, because, Andrew, we hear this a lot whenever we talk about LNG. Yes, it's a fossil fuel. Yes, you could contribute to climate change. You could certainly argue. But it's a cleaner burning fuel than coal and oil. Is it not? The thing, getting back to the amount, the, the climate impact of of LNG and looking at its uh, 20-year global warming potential and its full life cycle assessment of that fuel, those studies show that there is very little benefit to the climate from, uh, from using uh, LNG. And it gets back again to this this short term, we have to look at these fuels in the short term, especially uh, a methane-based fuel like LNG, because that's when it does all its damage. It stays in the atmosphere for 10 uh, to 12 years. 
So if we're mm. looking at investing in alternatives, we have to look uh, longer term than that. Uh, in the shipping sector, you know, ships are built uh, to last for 30 uh, or, or, or 40 years. And so you want to invest in in alternatives uh, for the life of that of, of that ship. Okay. And it's it's. I mean, yesterday the International Energy Agency well, came came out with a very convincing report, basically Andrew, saying. Andrew, what's the alternative to LNG though? What's the alternative today that's technologically feasible? Yeah. Are, so are you talking about battery powered boats? In the shipping sector, it's a it's a it's a good question, um, and. And uh, for the first thing we need in the shipping sector is sector-based targets uh, uh, that are in line with uh, the Paris Agreement. Um, it's it's interesting, you know, it's important that the IMO just came out this year with new uh, targets uh, with an ambition of uh, reducing 30, 30% by 2030 uh, and 80% uh, by 2040. We need, we need, uh, targets such as those, uh, unfortunately, those aren't Paris line, but we need targets in Canada so, to create a okay. culture of innovation around new My, fuels. So the first, go, go is, ahead. Hang, first is the, the targets. Go, go the ahead, second, Cody. Yeah. Go ahead, Cody, just real yeah. quickly, and then we got to so, fit a break in here. So, go ahead. So I'm really proud to celebrate progress in reducing emissions in our marine sector by using liquefied natural gas. I do not believe Andrew has a feasible, affordable, reliable opportunity that's an alternative so simply to say that we should not be making progress uh reducing emissions switching from bunker fuel to liquefied natural gas it's not a feasible realistic or pragmatic approach to simply say we can't do this and there's no alternative today so i'm really proud to celebrate think, um, canada's six in the world for renewables we yeah. are building out our liquefied natural gas industry that the world is asking for that indigenous communities are, are proponents of and are developing we need all of the above we've okay. seen that with the energy crisis and the affordability crisis and we need real concrete solutions not pie in the sky wishful thinking that has no technical concrete solution or okay. or alternative all right it's our great lng debate andrew dumbrill and cody Battershill are my guests both sides of it for you fit in one of your calls here brian and coquitlam hey brian go ahead hey mike i just wanted to say that andrew is right but it doesn't matter because the cl rapid climate change is going to happen no matter what whether we sell or don't sell the lng we should sell the lng take the money we make from that and then pay for the mitigation of the climate change it means uh, shoring up our rivers and seawall and putting more trees up and stuff like that. We use that money to fix our issues with climate change because it's going to happen no matter what. Okay, it's Andrew, what do you world. say? Thanks for the call. Andrew, what do you say to that? I think the uh, solutions, especially around shipping, are there to reduce emissions dramatically over the next uh, 10 years. You know, if you slow a ship down by 10%, uh, you reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by up to 20%. Uh, the sail technology is really increasing right now. There's these huge reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and you can make ships more efficient. You can shave off 10, 15, even 20%, you know, by re redesigning the hull. So all these, all these, you know, methods right now, switching to, to uh, away from bunker fuels to something called MGO, it's marine, uh, marine, similar to marine diesel, you can reduce um, uh, black carbon, which is a short-term climate forcer, 
which contributes to uh, global climate change. So there are things right now that in the shipping space uh, we can do to actually make 20, 30, 40, 50 percent greenhouse gas reductions. The important thing around those things is that it gives you time to invest in truly green uh, fuels. Uh, And we're looking at, you know, hydrogen or methanol based fuels. And the last thing I'll say on this, the world's largest shipping company, everybody's heard of Maersk, right? The Danish shipping company has said no to LNG. There is no future in it because we're quickly going to outpace its usefulness. Its best before date is quickly approaching. We need to get to zero emission fuels. It's mainly methane. So to invest ships and and facilities these are going to become stranded assets okay. within five or ten years and that's really Cody. an important point the stranded assets piece you don't want to invest in something that's going to be out of date in five years when the shipping okay. needs, shipping industry needs something that's that's uh, good for 30 or 40 years cody battershill your response go ahead well andrew's talking about small incremental efficiency gains 10 20 30 percent there's many studies and many companies, many big shippers that would say LNG is a 10, 20 or 30 percent potential improvement in emissions. So we do need to be balanced. We do need to treat everything the same. I would just point to the fact that for the last decade, we've heard oil's bad, natural gas is bad, emissions up. And what's happened in the world? Demand has continued to increase. Yes, along with renewables, but also with coal. We need all of the above if we want to balance affordability for for Canadians, if we want to balance energy security for our trading partners and allies, the developing world, and if we want to tackle sustainability, Canadian liquefied natural gas will have the lowest emissions on Earth. That's a win for the climate. Reducing coal power, win for the climate, and supporting Canadians is a win for Canadian families and affordability. It's pretty simple. Okay, guys, sadly, we just have just a little over a minute left here. Andrew, I'll give, I'll give you each 30 seconds here to sum up. Andrew, what is the main message you want people to hear here from your campaign? Go ahead. If LNG is used in the shipping industry and you look at uh, the global warming potential from a 20-year point of view and a life cycle, uh, full life cycle accounting of LNG, the greenhouse gas emissions are 70% to 82% higher than conventional distillate or diesel fuel. That is not a solution uh, in in the shipping industry. And it's almost entirely methane, an extremely potent greenhouse gas, which is 80 times more potent than CO2. So to invest in these large projects and to build ships to use a fuel that is increasing our greenhouse gas emissions it makes no sense given what we've seen this year with wildfires. The, the climate emergency is literally on our doorstep. Mike, I got to go, go ahead. Go ahead, Tony. I got to get the last word in. Less than Andrew's a minute left. Go ahead. Yeah, Andrew's go basically ahead. saying we should just keep using oil based fuels because there is no alternative today. So we just need to be balanced. BC LNG helps, it helps the climate. It helps affordability. It helps energy security. It is a win for Indigenous communities that support it, are building it and trying to develop it and own it. It is a win for all Canadians. And we just need to be pragmatic. This know-everything message with no technologically feasible or affordable alternative today is ridiculous. It's just fear-mongering. And we can and must continue to advance all of the above. Okay. 
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.